0: Welcome to Ottawa Valley Community Church, where we simply want to help you encounter Jesus, be transformed, and share His love. Okay, so we are—we're in the middle of a series. Um, uh, Preparing ourselves through the Lent season, Uh, most of you are familiar, we're doing a little bit of a fast through this series. Many of us are fasting from social media and and other things as we begin to prepare, begin to engage with the cross and and all of that. And we're looking at a particular text uh, that, that is called the Upper Room Discourse. Um, And that's looking through uh, the lens of the writer, John. Uh, What's happened in the story of the the gospel as it's unfolded, as John tells the story, is that uh, the disciples have come Uh, They've entered into Jerusalem. Uh, There's been, uh, we can see from the Synoptic Gospels, there's been uh, this triumphal entry moment. Everybody is celebrating Jesus as he comes into the city. Uh, They go, uh, in some accounts, it's like he cleanses the temple. So he's sort of taking a victorious sort of charge over the city. The disciples are excited. He takes them up to an upper room for a Passover and begins to say cheery things about him going away. So they're they're expecting this victory, they're expecting this uh, triumphal sort of takeover of Jerusalem, this expansion of his kingdom, uh, the overthrow of Rome, and all of that kind of stuff to happen. But Jesus knows that he's going to the cross, Uh, he knows that the resurrection is coming, and he's trying to bring the disciples in on it. And as he goes through this passage in John, uh, he's preparing them actually for what comes beyond the the crucifixion and the resurrection. He's preparing them for ministry. He's preparing them for their lives as disciples as they go forward. And and so as he begins to talk about that, as he begins to signal to them that he's going away, it says that their hearts are troubled. Their hearts are concerned, that their hearts are wavering. Uh, And they're wrestling with some big questions. uh, do we just have to go home? And Jesus sort of says, no, the road is going to be your home. The mission isn't over. You're still going. At the end, I'm preparing a place for you. But really, I'm going to be with you on the journey as you go and do the things you're called to do. And they're worried, but do, uh, do we have to walk alone? Like, how are we going to do this without you? And he teaches about the Holy Spirit. Uh, Pastor Ivan, a couple of weeks ago, uh, answered the question in the disciples' hearts. Like, how can we be fruitful? How can we be successful? How can we uh, be connected to to the mission without you here and jesus gives this beautiful illustration of the vine and the branches if you remain in me if you remain connected to me the source of life uh, you'll bear much fruit and then the last half of this discussion that's happening in the upper room is the disciples are sitting there again jesus has just washed their feet uh, they've shared uh, the last supper together they've taken the bread and the wine and jesus has said these crazy things about these symbols Um, He begins to address the question of what do you do living in a world where you're a very different person from those around you? What do you do uh, in the the context where you're a different person, where you're uh, at odds with the world around you, where you you don't quite fit? Because they were seeing that Jesus didn't fit. They were seeing that he was light in the darkness. They were seeing the awkwardness of him, and, and he knew that was going to be their. They knew that was going to be their experience as well. How many of you know that as as Christians or as people, there's there's fun different, there's good different, and there's uncomfortable different, right? I remember in high school, uh, I was uh, I was both kinds of different. <laughs> uh, I, I mean, I, I in high school, like I was. I, did you guys know that I was really cool in high school? I absolutely wasn't cool, but, I, but every high school student wants to kind of distinguish themselves a little bit, and I had this thing, I wore these kind of green khaki pants, and I had this sort of blousy, like, peat shirt, because it was the 80s, and these purple suspenders, and they kind of made me stand out, and I felt they, like they were really cool. They weren't at all cool. <laughs> they were in no way cool, and, and nothing I did was cool. There, there was absolutely nothing cool about me, but I felt like I was different. I felt like I stood out. I felt like there was something good about me, right? And then there was uncomfortable different. Right, I was a Christian in my school. I had a call to ministry. I began starting an interschool Christian fellowship group. I began to meet in Carlton Place High School and began to worship and, and do that kind of thing and and it was, it was something that was almost like a little mini revival for a short period of time where it grew really really fast and and I would have things stuffed in my locker. Uh, I, somebody stuffed a little thing in my locker once. It was a, a folded up page from a Bible with a hole burnt in the middle. And it said on it, um, I worship Satan. He told me to kill anyone who gets in, your way of worship, in my way of worship. So I got death threats in high school. That was an uncomfortable kind of difference. Right? So there's a distinctness and a difference. And there ought to be a difference uh, that, we, that we walk in in society. Uh, there is an external moral standard that we follow. Uh, We take our cues on our behaviors from something outside ourselves. That is radically different from what our society thinks. Our society thinks that our cues for behavior come from our heart and nowhere else. We be who we feel we ought to be, but as Christians, we don't live that way. We try to be what the Bible says we ought to be so we live by this different external standard and what our society feels and what people feel about that is a sense of judgment right if we're living by an external standard they see and feel that somehow we are also judging them by that external standard inherent to us living differently is a sense in the world that we're judging them now we're not judging them we hear the bible say do not judge, but there is an inherent discernment in how we live. We see behaviors and we know that some are good, and we know that some are bad. And that creates an uncomfortable difference for us. It's, it's a reality. There are things that our friends can participate in that we can't participate in. We are an awkward child in school. There's behaviors we can't echo. Uh, There's Christian worship. There's things that we do. You know, our friends don't understand this thing where we come together and, and join, like, with faithfulness on Sunday morning and sing songs to God. Instead of, you know, doing other things on Sunday morning that we could do. Stay in bed. Go do other activities. We value this. We prioritize this. And and it makes us different. It makes us culturally different. It makes us odd. We have a commitment to peace and kindness that should far outstrip those in the world. Uh, To the point where in the scriptures, that peace and kindness was so costly Uh, to the the early Christians, that that there was really a a radical, in some cases, a radical chosen poverty among Christians, of of rich people giving of their standard of living to care for the poor. There was a, a united economic body of people called Christians in the early church that seemed to share everything, and it just looked crazy to the world around them. It looked odd to the world around them. But when the world comes and and criticizes us, that kindness extends to us not getting defensive and not getting angry and getting full of self-protection. We hear the teaching of Jesus, and he says things like, turn the other cheek. Uh, Take up your cross and follow me. So our response to hostility as Christians is very different from the world. It's another thing that makes us an ugly duckling. Uh, We claim supernatural guidance and power. Okay, that's really weird, isn't it? Right? We claim to have guidance from a spiritual book of some kind. This, this Bible thing that we, that we listen to and that we, we read and that we follow and we think God is talking to us through a book. Earlier, this is the very words of God. People in our society think that's crazy. There aren't words of God in a book. There are words in your heart. and Maybe you should do what your inner voice says. But we don't listen uh, to a book... But sometimes we see things like miracles and we pray for God to move it, and people think that's strange. There's Christian exclusivism. We believe that Jesus is the only way. And that's an offense to people who believe that every person can choose their own way. Uh, There are truth claims, there are things that we believe happened. Jesus died on the cross and rose from the grave, and people don't believe that. Those things that we say are true and that we say that those activities require and demand a response from humanity makes people uncomfortable. And all of that, we believe all of these things about God and who he is, but we're also also given an evangelicalism. And I don't mean that in terms of evangelicalism, the group of people or the political movement or any of that. We are required to evangelize. We're required not only to believe what we believe about Jesus, but to proclaim it to the world. Aggressively, we are called to penetrate our culture. So it's not okay to let there be light over here and darkness over there. We are called to penetrate the darkness with the light. We are called to go into our culture and say things. So we are different. And what Jesus is doing in this text is he is wrestling with and helping his disciples wrestle with this question. How do we endure and thrive when by the very nature of our relationship with Jesus, we're fundamentally in conflict with the world? How do we do that when we just don't fit? We're we're fundamentally at odds with our society we're a counter-cultural movement how do we live like that how do we deal with that and how do we live with the griefs and pains that naturally come as a result of it there's griefs and pains that come with being different that we're called not to hide from but called to embrace and called uh, to endure and so jesus uh, starts encouraging his disciples like this. And we're just going to go through the text and hit some highlights from John 15, 18 uh, through to 16:33, and just hit some highlights of how Jesus is teaching his disciples to deal with this struggle of being a little bit different from the world. And he starts with this encouraging thought, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. Well, thank you, Jesus, for those <laughs> encouraging words. The world may hate you, but it's not about you, it's about me. Um, If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. But all of these things they will do to you on account of my name. Now, we want to modify that word hate a little bit. In the scriptures, uh, that word hate, when we hear that word hate, what do you think? You think sort of a burning anger. You think despising. You think something with really heavy emotional overtones. Uh, The the Greek word that's used here for hate isn't that word. The Greek word that's used for hate is to uh, discern a thing that is of lesser value morally and to set it aside. To to, to make a distinction of value between one thing and another and set aside. And that's actually the same word Jesus uses uh, when he says, um, he requires us to uh, hate our mother and father. He's not saying we hate our mother and father and should have like a a built-up anger or or an emotionally driven dislike of our parents. What he's saying is you need to place them uh, in terms of their value below how you value me. And that's what's happening to us in the world, As the world looks at all of these things that we believe. I don't think there are some that definitely hate us. That person who burned a hole in a Bible and said they, you know, felt like the devil was telling them to kill me. That person didn't love me all that much. I think there could have been some emotional overtones to that kind of hatred there. That that can be part of the experience. Uh, as people were yelling at Jesus, uh, you know, and yelling to the people, uh, Pilate, crucify him, crucify him. You hear an overwhelming kind of an emotional hatred there. But for the most part, people in the world don't hate us with an emotional, intense hatred. Um, but for the most part, they would say, you guys are crazy. We're just going to put you over here and not really consider what you have to say. That's, that's probably more like the reality for us, right? Is, is that the world marginalizes us in a certain way because of what we believe, because of what we hold. And so what Jesus is doing in telling us to expect that and in telling us that that is about him and not about us is that uh, he wants us to, one, know that he's taking ownership for it. Have you ever made, like, uh, done something, you know, wrong at work and you made a big mistake Uh, And you've had your boss be be a really good leader and come alongside, oh man, I'm so sorry uh, that happened. I I didn't really train you. We didn't really prepare you for that. It's really ultimately something, this is on me, not on you. Right? That's, That's what Jesus is doing there. He's taking mature and responsible leadership and saying, hey, you guys have to endure this hatred that's, that's coming, but don't let this go to your heart. Don't let this uh, be something that breaks you down. Don't let this be something that tears you down. This dislike that you experience in the world, this, this marginalization that you experience in the world, don't let that break your heart down. This is not really about you. This is about me. And so he takes ownership of it and he shelters us and and he's very generous uh, in doing that. Now, very often, uh, we as Christians uh, inspire the hatred of the world by being dumb, right? by being bombastic and being arrogant and being prideful and saying stupid things on social media and all that, right? Very often we make ourselves a stench in the nose of the world. What Jesus is saying about here is if you are faithful to do and be the people that I've called you to be, there is a natural consequence to that. You will naturally be devalued by some who see the world differently. And it's okay, Um, I can just own that. Uh, we see it in First Peter uh, chapter 2. And I, hadn't, I hadn't planned on reading this, but I just thought as I was preparing um, just before church, I would read this. You're a chosen people. A royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So your chosen priesthood, a a royal nation. And then he says this, he continues the thought, dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain uh, from uh, to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us So there's this inherent difference. We're a royal priesthood. We're a holy nation. We're called out to be something different and something beautiful. The end result is that people are going to see us in a way that, that, that could break us down. But the intention of God is for us to live holy lives and live pure lives so that people can see really clearly that it's not really us That they're against it's him we're supposed to stay out of the way our holiness and the purity we walk in and the gentleness we walk in that whole text goes on to talk about submission to rulers and authorities it's so that people can see that their conflict isn't with the other humans that if the humans are acting well if the humans are behaving beautifully if the humans are following Jesus with purity then people are going to be able to ultimately see that it's not us that they're in conflict with, that they're in conflict with Him. And where that ends and where that goes in the end is that ultimately, when He comes again, they see who we were and they understand the connection with His glory and they can come to praise Him. But so often we as Christians are getting in the way with that. So there's a question for us here. Are we willing for our words and deeds... To be distinct enough that we are undeniably identified with Jesus. And that's just a a moment of reflection for you and for your life and for me. Is my life enough like Jesus that I am distinct from my culture? I think for many of us that's a fairly challenging question, isn't it? It's a fairly challenging question. Am I living in a way that that looks so much like Jesus, they see him and not me? And so there's a challenge there. And then once that happens, once we're living that way, once we are living in a purity that looks like Jesus, our being, our words, uh, confront people with the reality of who he is, then our job is just to not react to the hatred of the world in such a way that people think they're in conflict with us. We want them to see that they're actually wrestling with him and who he is, and that he's making an invitation for them to come and get to know him. So he's he's warning us about that dynamic, and then in the midst of that, that declaration that we have with our words. Again, we're called to proclaim who Jesus is, and we're called to demonstrate who Jesus is. He says, hey, that's not just the only thing that's happening there. It's not just the human-to-human dynamic that's going on here. Uh, He begins to teach about the Holy Spirit. He says this, but when the helper comes, whom I will send to you, whom the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me, and you will also bear witness, because you've been with me from the beginning. So verse uh, 27 there, uh, we bear witness, just as I talked about, our lives bear witness to who he is, our words proclaim the reality of who he is, Uh, what it's saying there in that text, uh, you have been with me from the beginning, is the disciples saw the life of Jesus, saw the stories of Jesus, saw the things he did, and ultimately, after this point, they They saw his death and then they saw his resurrection. And that's our story. We look at the scriptures. We look at what they reported. We look at the eyewitness reports of Jesus' life. Uh, we look at the story of the resurrection. We say that's something that happened in reality and happened in the world. And so we take that and we proclaim it and we tell that story. And then Jesus says, but that's not the only things that's happening here. The Holy Spirit comes, the helper comes. And that word uh, for helper, we talked about that last week, is the word advocate. So it's a legal term in the Greek world where somebody comes alongside and begins to talk about who Jesus is and testify to who Jesus is beside you. Steps into the docks in the court and begins to act as your advocate and begins to proclaim. But there's something crazy here in this text, that phrase spirit of truth. We skipped over it last week, Uh, but you take these two words, spirit of truth, the Greek word uh, is um, Uh, Pneuma for spirit and then Athaliah, The word pneuma there just means spirit. It means that ethereal thing, that spiritual thing, that entity, that being, that person of God who is everywhere at all times, who is like the wind. That word pneuma means wind or breath. So that's a very kind of intangible, floaty, moving thing. And what John does is it ties it to the word Athaliah, which speaks of Cold, hard reality, ultimate reality, a reality that is objective, a reality that is not changed uh, by the wind, by the circumstances. And so, what John is doing here and talking about the, the Spirit, he's saying, This Spirit, this thing that goes everywhere and and empowers your speech and is the advocate that comes alongside you, that thing is also testifying to the reality that you have experienced, the testimony that you're sharing with your friends, the reality of God's work in your life. He's telling the real thing. He's taking this airy, fairy, spiritual language and, and marrying it to something absolutely concrete. And what that does, that that linguistic dissonance between those two ideas does, is really gives us a picture of how evangelism works and a picture of how our ministry works. Our lives, our words present the reality of Jesus and who he is. We act and speak like people who've seen him. And then as we stand, the Holy Spirit, the advocate, comes alongside and bears witness to that reality. And this is kind of how I think it works. Every person that we talk to about Jesus and who he is has a suit of armor on. People have a suit of armor on. They have a a natural defense. They have a a natural barrier uh, that that protects them from the reality of the truth of who Jesus is. And we can share our words and we can share our testimony. And it's really easy for a person to, to sort of dismiss the things that we say, we can, we can just sort of say, ah, I just don't want to think about that right now. We can, we can put that aside. Very often our rational arguments and our truth-telling aren't enough to penetrate to the heart. But the wind of the Spirit blows into the cracks. Yes. The wind of the Spirit blows through the chinks in the armor. And all of a sudden, as we're sharing the truth of who Jesus is, the reality of who he is, the objective historical truth of the resurrection, our testimonies of his work in our lives, the Spirit who's standing beside us just sort of whoosh, breathes in through the cracks in the armor. And all of a sudden, the Spirit of God is whispering and witnessing and testifying to the reality of Jesus from inside the very person that we're face to face with. And so for us, as we think about sharing the reality and the story of Jesus and who he is, we should just ask ourselves these questions. One, are we living the truth of the good news? Are we actually walking it out so that people can see Jesus, They know that uh, there's something different about us that that matches the words we're saying. And then are we actually telling the story? Are we actually saying the words? Um, I mean, we've heard that. I've I've said this so many times that there's this ancient saying ascribed to St. Francis of Assisi, preach the gospel at all times and if necessary, use words. That's not biblical at all. Preach the gospel at all times by your life. And it's absolutely necessary to use words. It's absolutely necessary that they know that the resurrection happened. It's absolutely necessary that they know that Jesus died on the cross. It's absolutely necessary that they understand that what he died for was from their sins. Those words absolutely must come out of our mouth. So are we doing it? Are we living it? Are we saying it? And then are we entrusting all of that to the Holy Spirit To bear witness, are our prayer lives full? Think about the person that you love and you want them to come to know Jesus. You're bearing witness by your story. Or are you? Oh, I don't want to talk about it. Are you bearing witness by your life? Oh man, there's integrity holes in my life. They can't trust the words that are coming out of my mouth. Am I praying for the Holy Spirit to be present as I get those other two things in line? And very often, when those three things are in line in our lives, that's when evangelism is successful. That's when people come to know Jesus. So there's a call on us to have these three boxes checked. And then Jesus, uh, telling them how it works and sort of describing this scenario to them, um, He goes on and He says, you know what, it still isn't going to result in fame and glory and awesomeness necessarily for you. You still maybe have a tough road to hoe. Uh, And Jesus says this. He says, I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. He's warning them about the difficulties and the challenges again. They'll put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he's offering service to God. But I've said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember... That I told them to you. So he's saying this works pretty well. The spirit is going to work. The church is going to grow. It's going to thrive. It's going to begin to change the culture. Um, but the reality is, is that there is going to be backlash that you are going to have to wrestle with. And I, and I want you to know about that. And, and I just think that this is just incredibly generous of Jesus to warn us about our expectations. Many of us have come into Christianity with expectations that that following Jesus is going to result in maybe a little bit more prosperity for us. Uh, It's going to result in better health for us. It's going to result in in better friendships for us. And and realistically, statistically, I think that's actually true. If you obey Jesus, if you follow him, if you do the things that you're called to do, there, there are ways in which your life is actually very likely to work out better because you're walking in obedience to him. But... He is warning us here very clearly that this is not a magical formula that always holds up. Very often the very things that we're growing into are the things that are bringing us into conflict with the world and bringing out difficulty in the world. The transformation in our own lives and the transformation of our friends is very often by the world, as he has warned us, perceived as a threat. And so it gives us fair warning, and this is, I think, the beauty of that. I think this is what I think that that his managing our expectations for us does. One, it gives us a, uh, just an incredibly generous gift um, of of honor, uh, just a, a gift of I don't know the right way to say it is it of dignity, and a gift of joy. I think for us to be able to know that, you know, our decisions to follow Jesus that are going to be costly relative to our relationship with the world. When we go ahead and we know that's going to be costly, and we make those decisions anyway. There, there's dignity and honor in that. And I think it's, it's generous of him to do that. Like, have you ever sort of, you think about your children um, and how you coach them. You, you know, maybe you, your kid going to play hockey. You know, you're you're probably, unless your kid is actually going to be the MVP, you know, you as a parent probably aren't going to go and tell them. You're going to go and tell them to work hard. You're going to go and tell them uh, to to have an amazing ethic, to have fun, and to play hard. But you're not going to say to every kid, you know what, you are going to be the top goal scorer for your team every time. Right? You're not going to say that. It's not not realistic. It's not kind and it's not gentle. You want to tell your kid, you know, you're going onto the ice Uh, You're going to have fun. You're going to get to handle the puck. But you're going to fall down, and and somebody's going to hit you. And you need to know that's going to be able to be happening in your life so that you can get back up and go. It's just good parenting. It's just good coaching. And that's what Jesus does for us uh, so often. Um, And so by the time you get to Acts chapter 5, uh, verse 14, the apostles leave the high council. They've been called before the council. Uh, They're in this uh, credible place where they're being challenged and the, the council is fighting against them. And it says this, the apostles left the high council rejoicing them that God had counted them worthy to suffer for the name. Right? There there is joy and worthiness in going into the hard stuff we're called to go into. Uh, Because we've chosen it. We said, Jesus, we love you. It becomes an act of worship when we have intention tied to it. When we know what we're going into, it's an act of worship. What would it be if he didn't warn us? It would be a trick. Hey, your life is going to be awesome. Your life with Jesus is going to be fantastic. Everything is going your way. It's going to be uh, sunny ways, right? Well, well, we would feel when life actually got hard and actually got difficult, what we would feel is actually a sense of betrayal, wouldn't we? We'd feel a sense that, that he tricked us into this, that he hadn't uh, told us what was really going on. And, you know, I started uh, taking a little bit of time um, just just as I was writing this message, and I just started listing off in my mind, like, just people that I know who've fallen away from the faith because they came into it with with bad expectations, right? You all know people like this uh, who came to church and they had an amazing emotional experience maybe. Um, uh, and, and this is particularly bad for those of us in, in charismatic and Pentecostal uh, backgrounds. I've seen this just so much where people just think, you know what? God is going to heal me every time. God is going to do miracles. God is going to cause me to prosper. God is going to give me favor in my job. Right? Aren't those things that you've heard as sort of offered as promises to you in, in this particular stream of Christianity? Well, I know like I listed like close to 30 people before I I just kind of gave up and got too sad to continue. Uh, People who had you know grown up in charismatic Christianity and then in their 20s or 30s, a brother dies. Where is God in this? God has failed me, and they drift off and away from church. My child has a disease. I have a disease. God isn't real anymore to me, and they drift off. I went through a conflict at work. I went through difficulty in my relationships. I was telling people about Jesus, and they smacked me down. This Christianity thing can't be real. And there's just person after person after person who's been sold the bill of goods about their faith. And when things got difficult... They couldn't endure. That's why a theology of suffering is so important to have alongside our theology of healing, alongside our theology of miracles, alongside our theology that says that Jesus does bless us when we give. All of those things need to be met with something in our teaching and something in our theology that helps us have realistic expectations about what the journey is is really about. How many of you have, have wrestled that or even are wrestling that with your faith? Um, is there any chance that you're wrestling with uh, depression or anger or disappointment with God or frustration with him because you're measuring your Christian life against a fantasy that Jesus never promised? Right? can measure your life against a fantasy that Jesus never promised. Now, I I don't want to take away from the joy of following him in this, but the reality is is that joy comes by his presence in the midst of the sorrow, in the midst of the grief, in the midst of the tribulation, in the midst of the the conflict. Our joy is meant to be constant through all of that. Uh, Good things do happen in faith. They really do, but the only thing that we're really promised is His presence. That's the promise that He will be with us in the light and with us in the dark remember when I was, um, we were young, young pastors. We were probably, as before we were 30, we were pastoring in Toronto. And some of you will know this story, and some of you are new and won't know it, but I'll tell it again anyway. Beautiful, beautiful couple uh, who were leaders with us in our church, some of our young adult leaders, uh, part of the worship team, and, and they had just gotten married, and, and they were pregnant, and they were expecting uh, a child. And uh, there was so much hope in the community about the the birth of this child and so much excitement. And everybody was gathered and they were just so public and out there about their excitement and about their faith. And on the day they were in the hospital to give birth to the baby, I I got the call. And and they said, can you pray? Can you come? And I walked into the hospital uh, and saw this beautiful couple with so much hope and so much life cradling in their arms uh, their their newborn baby who was born still. It's incredible grief. It's incredible pain and I and I will never forget uh, their posture in that moment because we had taught about walking through brokenness and being taught about walking through pain and we taught about the reality that the world isn't always a perfect world and that we live in a place where, where bad things happen and, and I'll never forget their funeral. The song we sang was a song uh, by Kevin Prosh. Though you slay me, I will trust you, Lord. Though you slay me, I will trust you, Lord. I bowed down and kissed the sun. And in that moment of grief and in that moment of pain and in that moment of turmoil in their family and all that happened around it, I can tell you uh, without a shadow of a doubt that there have been very, very few times in my ministry and my life and my experience when I have felt so deeply and so powerfully and so tangibly the might and presence of God. Because he met us with his power in the middle of our grief. And somehow in that undercurrent of sorrow, there was this bubbling trust and this bubbling joy. Because the reality of who he is was present to us, even in our pain. And that's what Jesus is saying in this text. Grief is to be expected. Grief is a part of the journey. This is happening. This is part of what's really going on. And then he gives us two things that are meant to give us hope and are meant to give us joy in the midst of that grief. And and we're just going to read from verse 20. Truly, I say to you, you will weep and you will lament. But the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn to joy. And this is how he says it happens. He gives us two things, and here's the first of them. When a woman is giving birth, uh, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So this is the first thing he gives us. Uh, On the other side of sorrow is life. On the other side of sorrow is fruit. On the other side of sorrow is purpose. On the other side of sorrow is fruitfulness, is the coming of his kingdom. So we look at that and we see that in, in Paul's teaching. We see that uh, all over the place that there is purpose associated with our suffering. There is purpose associated with our grief. Uh, I remember when, when our son Jack was born, um, it, was, you know, it was, for me, it was a really hard delivery. Want to know? Want you to know about my suffering through that. Um, it, it was it was a hard story. When Jack was born, it was an induced labor and it was it was planned, but it was 36 hours of labor. And let me tell you, that's a long time to get ice chips. I'm just saying. Um, and Anna went through the ringer, right? And she went through through the pain of that. And after 30 some hours of labor and trying to make this. This uh, this beautiful boy come out, you know. It's into an emergency C-section, and and it was it was just a really rough one. Uh, I remember sitting beside the table, and having the doctor ask me to steady the table, like steady the surgical table, because she was having to like do physical things on Anna's body and the baby that required the table to be steadied. That doesn't sound was that fun to you? That wasn't fun. She had more drugs. Um, but I, here I am. I'm in the table, right? And, I, and it was like months or years later, we went to Almont and, and the doctor who had delivered Jack was there. Now, Jack was born in New Brunswick, and the doctor was then living in Almont later, met this doctor, and she said, recognized this right away, and, and literally still had a hand injury from delivering Jack. Like, he was wedged in there, and she literally had a hand injury from trying to get him out. And so those are sort of memories that sort of float around to me, but those memories are actually kind of gray. Like if those memories had been really vivid, we never would have had Toby, <laughs> right? But those memories are gray, but you know what I really remember from that day more than anything else? Is I remember when they took little Screaming Jack and put him on the scale and weighed him 28 pounds and somehow, yeah. <laughs> And to me, that's the memory. That's the memory where there's like a light shining from heaven on his little body. Whoa! And he had blonde hair, but there was blood in it. So I thought his hair was red. And I told everybody I had a red-haired baby. It was awesome. But uh, after we washed him, he wasn't red. Um, but but that's the moment I remember. In the midst of the steady the table and the get the cart out and get the tools and whatever else they had to do, Some you know, go to... I don't know, go to a rental village and get something to get the boy out. Uh, But I just remember that moment of seeing him on the scale and just that bright, shining joy that this creature was born. And we're meant to have that joy. We're meant to have that joy when our friends come to faith. We're meant to have that joy uh, when the good things happen in the journey. We're meant to have that joy as we go forward. Um, In Romans 8, now Paul has heard this teaching. He's probably met John and had a conversation with him. He's met these leaders of the early church. And so we see this teaching walked out in Paul's life so often. He says this in Romans chapter 8, verse 35, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall distress, or tribulation, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. in all these things, we are more than conquerors. Through him who loved us. Listen, at the heart of this, it is for your sake that we are being slaughtered. Let's ask a question for whose sake are you being slaughtered? For whose sake is your faith journey costly? For the next generation, for a person you're trying to reach, for a child you're trying to raise, are you willing to let your life be uh, like being killed all day long? It's for the sake of the fruit. It's for the sake of the good thing that's happening. Yeah, Paul gets at it again in 2 Corinthians 4.15. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God so we do not lose heart though our outer selves are wasting away. It is for your sake. Philippians 1, 23-26, my desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that's far better. It would just be better for me to be dead. I'm getting beat up so much. That's what Paul's saying. You know, shipwrecked, beaten, stoned. Like, it would just be better for me to be dead. He's basically saying that would be far better to be with Christ. But to remain in the flesh is for your sake. It's for you. It's for the next generation. It's for the people we're reaching. The people we're discipling. The people we're telling Jesus about. The people we're leading Bible studies for. The people we're trying to mature in the faith. Uh, The people we're telling the gospel to. Bad things are happening in my life. I'm taking hits left, right, and center. This is costing me my money. This is costing me my standard of living. This is costing me so much. But it's so worth it for those we're reaching. It's so worth it for the next generation. It's so worth it for the expansion of the kingdom. So that's the first thing. It's worth it for the fruit. It's worth it for the fruit. It's worth it for their sake. And so think about your time, uh, budget, your time and energy. With tithing, that's not so bad. We can easily sort of tithe off the top of our paychecks and trust ourselves to live on the rest. But think about our time budget. Our vocation, our vacation, our rest, and very often whatever's left over we give to the kingdom. Right? But what would happen if we put that kingdom passion at the head of all the rest? What could possibly go on as we live costly, costly lives for him? And so that question is out there for us. Are we willing to work for the gospel to the point of personal cost for the sake of the next generation? Are we willing to do that? And what does that mean for you? Something to just take home and think about. Something for me to think about. Am I willing for this thing to cost me something? It's worth it for their sake. And then the second thought. Even though there's grief, even though there's pain, even though there's a cost, even though there's a price, even though grief is to be expected, the resurrection's coming. The resurrection is coming, right? This is the hope that Paul gives us. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed, for this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. Death is swallowed up in victory. Death is swallowed up in victory. Whatever this costs you, whatever this pain of doing the gospel thing is, whatever this pain of living actually as missionaries in our society is, all of that sort of death working side of us is ultimately swallowed up in victory when the resurrection comes. There is hope at the end of this journey. We believe this thing that Jesus has done, that he has been raised from the dead. So too shall we so too shall we. That is our great hope. It is worth paying the cost for the fruit and it's worth paying the cost because in the end, it all gets paid back. There's life at the end of this thing. It goes far beyond any cost. And then he just gives one last thought at the end that, that I think is something that plagues some of us. Uh, his disciples at this point are just talking, and they're asking questions. They're beginning to get built up a little bit. They're beginning to get a little courageous. They're beginning to talk about how we know him, and we know you, Jesus, and we'll follow you, and we're in on this thing. And Jesus says, uh, oh, do you now believe? You say you your belief, but do you now believe? And then he says, behold, the hour is coming, and indeed it has come, when you will be scattered each to his own home, and you'll leave me. He says this, I've said these things to you that in me you might have peace. In this world you'll have tribulation, but take heart. I've come overcome the world. Hey, listen, guys, you're going to fail. Saying this to his disciples, guys, I know Peter, we've already talked about this. The rooster's going to crow three times and you're going to have denied me three times and you're out of here. You guys are going to go and hide under rocks. You guys are going to make mistakes. And what he's just saying there is even our mistakes, even our failures are trumped by his victory and by what he's done. we are overcomers because of what he has done, not because of what we've done. Worship team, you guys can come ahead, Simon. That tribulation that comes is a word that means pressure. There is pressure on you. And he says, but take heart. Uh, I will bolster you from inside. And so he's talking, these are actually Greek engineering terms. Uh, Tribulation, philipsis, will be met by thoreso. Philipsis, pressure that is on you will be met by my thoreso. By this bolstering that's meant to happen inside. And so we know what the disciples didn't know. The disciples at the time, they were hearing all this warning and all this teaching about enduring suffering and following uh, the gospel and living costly lives for the kingdom. They didn't know the end of the story that Jesus was to be resurrected gloriously and, and meet with them. But we know the story and we know that we are going to get to experience that resurrection. In Romans 8, as Paul is teaching this, he continues on, knowing all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers or demons, nor things present, nor to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God. Overcome. Thanks for joining us. To connect to the ministries of Ottawa Valley Community Church, visit ovchurch.ca.